0: Hey, you're listening to Can I Say That? with Brenna and Austin Blaine.
1: Hey you guys, welcome back to the show. Today we are talking about when leaders fail and chances are if you grew up in the Christian church, you have probably witnessed either a pastor or some type of leader, maybe a small group leader, have to step down from their position as a leader because of a choice they made that disqualified them either from leadership at that current time or even from leadership overall in a church setting. And I believe whether you are someone who is on staff at a church who has had a fellow staff member have to step off, or maybe you are part of a congregation that has gone through that, the likelihood of you being able to process through what that looks like before it happens is pretty low. And yet our entire faith is centered around this belief that we as human beings are broken. We as human beings mess up. So I wanted to ask my friend Gary about what is moral failure? What does that look like in the church? How do we describe it? How do we define it? If we are that person to mess up in that way, what is the best way to deal with that? How can we continue to be like Christ and own up to our mistakes? And finally, how do we care for someone in our life who has gone through that, who has made that mistake and continues to be in our life? What does that look like? So I'm really excited for you to hear from Dr. Gary Brashears today. He is a wonderful person. Be sure to check out his bio on our Instagram if you haven't already. And without further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation about when leaders fail. Gary, thanks for being on the show. Before we get started, can you just share a little bit with us about what you do and what your ministry looks like right now?
0: Uh, Well, what I get paid for is being professor of theology at Western Seminary, and I'm starting my fifth decade of doing that, if you can believe that. So it's been crazy how long I do. And then along with that, I do a lot of church consulting with troubled churches, a lot of pastors, and a lot of counseling with various kinds of people. And I'm a totally unapologetic Bible geek, mm. so I'm on the board of Bible Project, too, and love that ministry.
1: So today we're talking about when leaders fail, and a lot of the questions we'll be asking have to do with moral failure, but what exactly is moral failure, and is there a biblical lens through which we can look at this?
0: Well, what you just touched on I really hot buttons, because in American, moral failure means having sex with a person who's not your wife, or husband husband. And so you say a pastor is in moral failure, immediately he's in some sort of sexual compromise. Mm. Well, that's bad. Mm -hmm. But that's not the only moral failure. When I look at scripture, actually power abuse is at least as high as sexual abuse. And you've got information abuse, uh, because we're as pastors, we're entrusted with all kinds of confidential information. We have to deal with that confidentially. So I've been an expert witness in clergy malpractice, and that's the most common suit is actually information abuse, uh, violating confidentiality. And then there's always the issue of financial abuse. So moral abuse is all those kinds of things, in my judgment, I don't want moral to Be just sexual, but in American that's what it means. Mm. Puyo, in American, let's go with biblical. Moral is much broader than just sexual, but not less than that, of course.
1: In your experience in ministry, do you find it better to be completely explicit with a church congregation about the moral failure of a leader, or do you think there are times when not having full disclosure with the body is important?
0: Uh, there are times when you can't tell the body what's going on. If you, and I'll give you, I've got specific stories behind all these things, but there are times when I have sexual abuse where it's a, it's a grooming and, a, you know, it's assault, really. Mm-hmm. Rape, maybe not quite that high, but, but grooming by power abuse and that sort of stuff, you've got to protect the person who's been abused. You cannot be open and say, Pastor Joe actually abused Mary mm. because then Mary is drug out and she will just be, get ripped up why are you wearing such a low dress or you know mm. something because the victim gets hurt badly because there's this reaction to protect the pastor I'm saying pastor here specifically so yes there are times when you cannot be explicit but on the whole I am absolutely committed to the more more transparent you can be the better and preferably have it being said by the person who's actually the abuser and confess openly that's the best way to do it but rarely happens actually mm. unless you've got a real work of the spirit but you have to protect the innocent you have to so sometimes you just can't tell the whole story
1: in your experience have most people who dealt with moral failure or committed moral failure do they usually just run the opposite way
0: oh yeah yeah uh, when when they're caught uh, the easiest thing is just to move to Oklahoma mm. Again, I'm thinking of a particular example—a guy who was, I mean, really, really abusing stuff. And his was sexual abuse. Uh, he was actually groping people as he baptized mm. them. I mean, is that level of abuse? And when it finally broke out, and uh, he literally moved to Oklahoma.
1: Wow.
0: And there it is he's
2: he's gone it is interesting that thinking about transparency i think my first reaction is oh yeah it needs to be out in the open it needs to be talked about not pushed under especially because i think that's a common way that it would seem abuse continues is that it gets swept under the rug but my brain does not first think about the victim of and the ramifications
0: of bringing something to light like that and i think that's a really good a good point yeah and in, in my consultation work, and when I've been an elder, because there have been abuse that's happened in my own church, uh, you have to think about the victims and protect them. But more commonly, we end up protecting the abuser mm. because we don't want to... 1 Samuel 24, David doesn't kill Saul mm. in the cave, far be it me for, to touch the Lord's anointed. Mm. And that becomes an abusive verse very commonly, I cannot touch the Lord's anointed, meaning the pastor has special dispensation. And boy, is that wrong. That is absolutely wrong. The pastor is held to a higher level of accountability biblically than... Uh, somebody who's just an ordinary congregant. A question I, I
2: sometimes think about, I've never been in a situation where I've actually like had to ask this to a pastor, but who would you say, maybe primarily the a senior pastor or someone in that position of power in a church is primarily accountable
0: to? It uh, depends on the structure of the church. In most churches we, that I work with, we're free churches. that is, we're not part of a denomination. Mm-hmm. So the authority you're accountable to are the elders of the church, whatever you call that. And that's where in the consulting work that I do, a lot of times is helping elders understand the authority that they have and the responsibility that they have to deal with the, the pastor or whoever it is that's offending. And it takes a lot to get them up to do it because they just to the recoil, oh my gosh, I don't want to be a judgment. Mm. And mm. when that's your responsibility is to hold people accountable for that. If you're in a denomination uh, or an association, then you can go up the ladder to the district supervisor, or the bishop, whatever you call them. And I think in most cases, it's a really good idea, even if it's a local church, to get a consultant, uh, somebody like me who's working as an independent consultant, mm. to facilitate the process and be sure it's done well. And I've done that on a number of different occasions.
1: On our Instagram, I was asking our audience about have they experienced a leader in their life have moral failure or have to step down and then how that made them feel and it was pretty interesting how many people felt just deeply hurt even though the abuse wasn't against them they were still affected. So do you think there should be an attention and an added care to the congregation after a leader fails or is that more of is it on them to figure out how
0: to get through that? (laughs) I hope you can anticipate my answer. (laughs) The leaders have an absolute moral obligation to care for the congregation it's an absolute obligation and you just say the the congregation may have no idea what's going mm. on until it comes out in the front and i think of an example that i'm i worked with in my own church and the abuse that was happening n- almost nobody in the congregation knew it mm. until uh, the investigation happened uh, and when they found when the church found out about it i mean just all the hurt oh my gosh you know, and there's a sense of failure. We didn't take care of our pastor or mm. something like that. And we had to steer in and really have a lot of time pastoring the people through the betrayal. And the, I guess Christianity doesn't work after all. Mm. You know, and those kind of things. You have to care for the congregation as well as the, the victim of the abuse and the leader who's done the abusing.
1: Mm. And what does that look like?
0: I, well, the best thing to do is to, to have people available named people. I know this is really hard on you, you say from the front, and we'd love to talk to you. Here is a uh, mean in different ways. Here's an email address you can do anonymously. You can come talk to any of us on the elder board, anybody on the staff during the week if you want to just give them a call and say, hey Jane, can we talk? Anybody. They may not the ones that will be in talking to you, but that'll be a first step. Mm. You've got to provide an easy on-ramp to help in these kinds of things. then having some well-trained people available is really important and that may be professionals outside of the church counselors or mediators or Mm -hmm. something like that.
1: I was talking to a pastor actually about this subject and they said that they felt like there is always this pressure on them to not be able to talk about what they're struggling with for fear (laughs) of failing or for fear of, you know, appearing to Mm -hmm. maybe be mixed up in the wrong thing. So Mm -hmm. do you think, do you think there's an unnecessary pressure for leaders and pastors to hide their struggles for fear of judgment?
0: It is absolutely true. That, elder, that pastors and leaders end up having nobody to talk to about their own struggles. Mm. And so one of the roles I do, being an old man and being around for a long time, is I end up being pastor to pastors. I, ad, I advise all my students that go through my classes, especially the men, you've got to have a friend you can talk to. And by talk to, I mean talk without editing. Mm. Somebody that you know well enough that I can just blah mm-hmm. verbal vomit of how I'm feeling in the moment and somebody knows me well enough to not go freak out when they hear crazy stuff come out of my mouth. Uh, and I've had those kinds of friends the entire time I've been in ministry, I currently do. And so I have a friend I meet with every couple of weeks. We've known each other for a really long time and I don't have to edit with anything. I can just mm. all the filters down. And he knows me really well. I do the same for him. We're we're friends. It's not him being my counselor, it's, it's deep deep friends. Uh, between two men who really love each other. And mm. I've got a number of other people I talk to, but you've got to have somebody you can talk to candidly. Got to. Otherwise, you're just set up for, you're headed toward the rocks and the wind is blowing hard behind you.
1: If you happen to be like the person that someone's talking to, how do you know when something's like, hey, we got to talk to someone else about this when you got to bring other people in?
0: Yeah, it's that's a judgment call in my Groundwork there is imminent threat of harm. Mm. Same thing I do when I'm doing, I don't, I'm not a counselor, but I do what can be called counseling in a non-technical sense. And when somebody's telling me a thing about hurting themselves, Mm. I have to go through a protocol in my head. Is there imminent threat of harm to themselves or another? If there is, I have to take action you know, up to and including calling the police to make sure they don't kill themselves. Uh, same kind of thing with somebody who's an authority. If they're in a spot where they're imminent threat of harm to themselves or others, then I have to step up and make sure that that doesn't happen. And in... If you think in terms of that ways can get a little help from a professional counselor who's trained with legal and ethical issues in counseling, you can get some grids to work through to know when we've got to take it up to a higher level. But when it leaches a lot of my competence, then it has to go to somebody who's more competent than I am in these situations.
2: I think, especially as someone of my own personality, avoids conflict, you know, conflict aversion and everything, uh, it does remind me of, I believe it was you, a while back on Bridgetown podcast talking about nonviolence. Uh-huh. Yep. And you made, this isn't verbatim, but you made a comment about you would take action to stop someone from harming another person, up to, but not including, killing them.
0: I might kill them. Oh, okay.
2: So I might. There was like five of them, and I'm mixing up who said what? Yeah. Uh but saying how you would take action to stop them because that would yeah. be an act of love to stop them from harming someone else.
0: That's correct. I'm a pacifist. I'm nonviolent, And violence is hurting somebody because of retribution for what they've done. Mm. And I am on the non-violence things. Now, there are people who are more... More pacifistic than I am. Uh, but I, the difference between force and violence is critically important to me. I will use force to protect the innocent. But violence to do retribution, I don't think I can do mm. that. And that's a subtle difference, but it's an important difference. And if I were a Christian police officer, for example, and i got friends who are, they have to use force to stop somebody from doing harm to another. And if you got somebody who's about ready to kill a child or something like that a police officer would have to kill the person who's about to kill a child. And I had a long conversation with a police officer recently who had almost that exact scenario happen, and he shot a man from two feet away. Mm. I mean, he they were face-to-face, and he is about to kill somebody, and my friend shot him and killed him. And I can't even imagine going through that. And it just traumatized my mm. friend, the police officer. Yeah. But he had to do it. I don't think that's violence, that's force. Now, that's an extreme situation. But in pastoral kinds of things, I have to do things to stop people from harming innocent people. And that could be up to him using physical force to stop it. I've never had to do that, but I could. I did have to keep one of my kids from killing his brother a while back. But that's... <laughs> no, not really.
1: So I want to talk about redemption with this subject because I remember years back there was kind of a a more well-known pastoral failure. I remember catching an article that was written about this pastor and it was saying that he kind of, he reverted to a a charismatic theology Mm -hmm. because their perception was that the charismatic view would allow him to say, I'm healed now, I'm better, so I don't suffer from this anymore, so... I can pastor again. My question is, are there some types of moral failure that still allow pastors to remain pastors or come back to a position of spiritual authority?
0: I will say unequivocally, yes, people can come back from severe moral failure back into a pastoral role. My example of that is Paul. He was killing people.
1: Mm.
0: Now, he's doing it as a non-Christian, to be sure, but a zealous Jew, I think he, if he'd have died, he'd gone to heaven. I think he's a saved Jew. But he is killing Christians because he, of his mistake, his wrong, that he didn't know that Jesus was the Messiah yet. And I can imagine Paul sitting in a congregation next to the mother of a man that he had killed mm. and worshiping Jesus together. Mm. And then he stands up as an apostle to do his thing. So yes, that answer. The, the best example I have of this is Gordon MacDonald. Uh, he's a name that most people don't know now, but he was one of the most highly respected authors, he and his wife Gail. He was on staff at a couple different churches. He was at Grace Chapel back in Boston, which was one of the elite pulpits in those days. And he was there because he's a fabulous speaker and a real pastor and a good writer. And it was found he resigned that and went to be head of InterVarsity. And while he's university, InterVarsity, the truth came out that he'd been in a long-term affair with another woman mm-hmm. while he was pastor at Grace Chapel. Well, I mean, that ended it. I mm-hmm. was just really, really angry at him because mm-hmm. although I'd never met him, he was one of my heroes. Mm-hmm. And to have him do that, just, ah! And I was in InterVarsity, uh, the Urbana thing that they do each year. That Those days, the of Illinois Champaign-Urbana, that's the name. Now it's in St. Louis. But every three years, they have a missions gathering. And I was going as a faculty person, and he was in the faculty track as a speaker. And I said, "I no way I'm going to listen to that man. No way I'm going to listen to that man. And God said, <clears throat> I think I should go listen to that man. I said, God, no. He said, <clears throat> so I went and listened to him. I sat in the very back row, which is not like me, so I could get out because I knew he was going to make me mad. And I was going to get out of there. <laughs> and what I heard was redemption. <laughs> Instead of saying, I learned so much about grace by my failure, it was, I hurt people. What I did was Mm -hmm. absolute sin, no excuses. I was completely wrong. Wow, I said. And I mean, the way he said it, it was real. Mm. He ended up going into the pastorate in New York. He was asked to do it. And I knew people were on a spiritual care team. And then he went back to Grace Chapel.
1: Mm. Wow.
0: The church he had been in, they asked him to come back as an act of redemption in his inaugural sermon was to the people of Grace Chapel. I know that me coming back here, which I did not seek, and I very reluctantly accepted the invitation. I know some of you will be hurt by my coming back. And I just want to tell you, I'm so sorry that I hurt mm. you again. If there's anything I could do, I'd love to do it, please but know that I'm not here to hurt you, and by God's grace. I mean, it was that kind of thing. Mm. And he ended up doing a demon class for us twice at Western.
1: Wow.
0: First time I was there, I was in the faculty lounge. We sat down, and I said, hey, could I ask you a couple questions? (laughs) He said, go for it. And I laid it out. And to his credit, again, here was a man who was a redemption story. And he finished well. He's retired now. And yeah, redemption stories can happen. But somebody that leaves... This group to go to that group because they're more forgiving. Mm. I mean, I'm thinking of another guy, I won't use his name because it was a disaster. He was in a, again, a sexual affair, was kicked out of the church down in the Bay Area. He ended up going into, again, it was a Pentecostal, well, Pentecostal was a charismatic church that was forgiving and gracious, free grace, kind of the Tullian Tavigian type. We always forgive here. We don't Mm. shoot our... Their thing is, we don't shoot our wounded. Mm. They brought him back in. Within a year, he was in another affair with somebody in that church. And I was just... Can there be redemption? Yes, and I glory to God when it happens. Mm. It's got to be redemption. It Mm. can't be grace, which means overlooking sin. Grace is people getting help... From God to deal with their garbage. And that's real grace. And Gordon MacDonald showed that. And I'll hold him up as an example of redemption. If
1: you're on the hiring board for a church, how do you navigate that? If someone comes to you and they've had moral failure and they want to be hired again.
0: I, I pre- if they did that, I probably wouldn't. Mm. If they came looking and wanting to be hired, uh, my suspicions would go way up. But here's what I would do. Is I want to talk to the leaders of the former ministry. I want to talk to the secretary at the church about that, not just the leaders. I want to talk to the lower level employees. What did they feel? I want to talk to the person who was hurt. So if it's a, say it's an affair, I'd want to talk, if it's a man, I'd want to talk to the woman he had the affair with and see how has he treated her. Mm. I I want to I would really check it out. And then I'd just sit and watch him for a couple of years and see how it goes. It could happen. I mean I've seen it happen, but I'd be very, very, very I would I would talk to the people very candidly. Same thing I do when I do weddings for somebody who's had a divorce in their background. I always talk to the former spouse. I want to hear the rest of the story. So that that's what I do is I, I want to I want to not talk to the guy. I may mean, not talk to him, but I want to talk to people he hurt and the people who may have been hurt just to see how they got treated in the process. Mm-hmm. And if they've not been cared for I want nothing to do with mm. it. If this guy does that hurt people does not care actively about the people he hurt, it's not a redemption story, it's an avoidance story. Mm. Mm.
1: I want to go off of divorce cuz I've been dying to ask you this question actually. <laughs> because we know like we know a lot of people who've been divorced yeah. and got remarried yeah. and my understanding of scripture that I haven't done a ton of work into is always that remarriage like isn't meant for us. And so how do you biblically get there, that Mm -hmm. people can get remarried?
0: Well, the biblical standard is very clear. Matthew 19, just didn't mince any words, one man, one woman, husband and wife, for life, period. Any violation for that is sin. I mean, it's absolutely clear. So the first thing I want to hear is somebody who's had a divorce is, what's their attitude? And if they're blaming the other person for being a blankety-blank, We're done because you're not taking ownership for your stuff. There's got to be an admission this is sin, and I had a part in it. I don't think divorce is the unforgivable sin, but it's always a product of sin. So, and I'm thinking of example recently. I I just was texting with her this morning. But as a woman who uh, was thrown to the curb by her husband, she ended up meeting a man who had been he had gone into an affair when he was married to his first wife, and they started making eyes at each other and asked me to do this. Well, the thing that led me to do that, first of all, was the husband who had, had had the affair while he was married, totally, completely took ownership for his role, had repaired the relation with his former wife. I taught the former wife for over an hour. Turned out she'd been a student of mine at a class I'd taught. Oh. Deep conversation, and then I did their premarital and in that case, both of them were saying, my divorce was a product of sin. And they took responsibility for their actions and for the hurt that had come in that. Did a lot of healing. And in that place, I could say it's not the best way to do it by far. There's garbage coming in. But I think it's redeemable sin. Mm-hmm. But it is a sin. And their marriage, it's, a, it's another redemption story. Mm-hmm. And I love those. Mm-hmm. So the new wife's relation with his two children from the first marriage and with the former wife is a model of how it can be done. Because mm. it steered right into the issues, did with humility and grace. And, but the thing of it is, it is sin. It, every divorce is a product of sin, even if there's no sin on the part of one of the persons you're sinned against. Mm. You've got to do the redemption work on it. Uh, but I think it's a forgivable sin. Because mm. I would, see,
2: not to get, I don't know, yeah, but I'm always curious about because Jesus also pairs that with saying, "And the man, the guy someone who marries someone is, yeah. is also committing." I, think he's, I think he's
0: about. I think he's talking there about the guy who's trolling for a cuter, younger thing. Mm. Mm. And I know men who will actually bring women use their power uh, to bring women into their clutches, if you will. Mm. I think that's what he's talking about there. Now, in their context, of course, women can't divorce. In the Jewish context, only men can Mm. divorce. And I think it's a little bit of difference, because in our situation now, uh, divorce is more common from the wife's side than from the husband's side. So we're a completely different culture. But that idea of of men are going looking for helpless women, I think it's less common, but it happens. Women are coming around looking for helpless men and can break things up too. It just power tends to be more with the male side for better or for worse. Mm. The last
1: time you and I talked I asked you about doing this podcast and you had brought up the topic of suicide which I never really considered to be you know moral failure but there has been an increase in pastors who have yep. committed suicide yep. and because of that people are starting to wonder if those who seriously struggle with mental illness and depression should hold a position of leadership within the church. So what are your thoughts on that?
0: I absolutely believe that people with mental illness can be effective pastors in church if they're transparent about it and if they know the impact it has on them but the responsibility of leadership can be quickly compromised by all kinds of different things so somebody who really struggles with anxiety they probably shouldn't be in pastoral leadership. Mm. If you've got an anxiety disorder, the stress of being a pastor, I mean, a prof- by pastor, I mean a professional church leader, it's a heavy stress job, and it's going to make it worse. Mm. Uh, so that's a case where I think a lot of people with anxiety disorders and such probably shouldn't be pastors, and if you get into that space, you've got to get help. So a pastor in our church, uh, he's a real public route, Jim Hislop, he's a, just a hero of mine, he was struggling with major depression while he was lead pastor at our church. He was very open with the congregation. You know, I really struggle with this stuff. He got a lot of help around. He's getting professional help. He's taking medication. And it, it had been stuff he'd struggled with before. And we stood with him. And actually, he is a pretty effective pastor in mm-hmm. that time because he was showing us how to live in a hard time. And so he went through the bout with us, and we went through it with him. Now, he wasn't suicidal. I think there's a spot where you need to step up and say, I'm just not qualified to do this and step down. I've helped several pastors have the courage to do that because they feel like they're letting God down when mm. they resign the pastorate. Mm. But that's a, that's a judgment call at what point the, the anxiety or whatever it is begins to compromise your leadership abilities to the point you need to step out of that. Mm. But you need to get some help to see it because can't, I can't see it myself. And my spouse isn't the right person to say it either. It's a too complicated a relationship. It has to be a, a friend or a professional counselor who can say, you know, I think you maybe need to take a leave of absence or a long sabbatical or something. Mm. Or maybe just resign him. Go to a job. I've got a friend who is a pastor. I'm thinking of it specifically. And because of anxiety, he stepped out of the past role, went into a secular job. And he's actually having more impact for Jesus in his mm-hmm. secular job now than he ever had as a pastor. But it's a spot where his anxiety stuff isn't a compromising thing for him.
1: Would you label people who struggle with mental illness or who have to step out, would you label that moral failure? No. No,
0: that's moral wisdom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, exactly the opposite. No, that's not moral failure. It just You go through seasons, mm-hmm. and in that season you need to be a spot where you can function effectively. No, suicide or suicidal ideation is not moral failure. It's, it's not. I know
1: there's a lot of mixed feelings when pastors step down. And some pastors choose to stay at the church. Before we end, how can followers of Christ love those who've stepped out of ministry in the public eye?
0: Invite them more for dinner and play a funny movie Mm -hmm. and laugh together and Mm -hmm. pray together and treat them as human beings. Mm -hmm. And then at the right time, just ask them, how you doing, really? How you doing? Mm -hmm. In a compassionate kind of way. You'll find a lot of times people are just waiting... I wish somebody cared enough to ask how I'm doing. Really ask. Ask it in such a way it's inviting them to be honest. Mm. Because, uh, uh, how you doing? The amount of I'm doing great. Yeah. You know. Well, that's not a real request. But if you've had a fun time and played some crazy games or maybe gone hiking or whatever, and then, okay, deal. Sit down and talk to me. How you doing? Mm. I, I know you're struggling. How you doing? See, that's an inviting kind of thing. Mm. And that's compassionate work. And that's a good way to treat somebody. Treats a human being valuable, fun, and hurting.
1: What are your thoughts on cancel culture?
0: <laughs> uh, cancel culture is one of those terms that. Well, Mike, I just hate it, frankly. The the cancel. When you use the term cancel culture, we tend to think of what happened to J.K. Rowling because she took a position where she was accused of being transphobic because she said as a fully involved pro lesbian LGBTQ plus all that, she said actually a woman is somebody who is socializes a woman and somebody who socializes a man who says not a woman isn't and not in the same way. And man Well you can't cancel JK Rowling, but they tried. See that's the left side. What we miss is the right side cancel. And my example is Colin Kaepernick. When he took a knee at a professional football game, the right side canceled Colin Kaepernick. Now, I know it's a lot more complicated than that, but we tend not to recognize the right side of the mm-hmm. political spectrum do the same thing. They just don't want to cancel. We're told by Jesus to love our enemies. The Matthew 7, judge not lest ye be judged, uh, and I'll use Colin Kaepernick because it's such a hot emotional and very current People are judging him, his motives, without ever knowing what his motives really were. And when he said publicly, these are my motives, people absolutely refused to believe it. That's judging, and Jesus says very clear, don't do that. So the cancel culture to me is completely non-Christian. If I'm not involved in it, I should just, not my business. If I am involved in it, then I need to go talk to him. If somebody's wrong, then I don't cancel them, I discipline them. I help them. But that cancel means you are not a person. Mm. I don't care what's right or left. That is absolutely not Christian. I say it with deep passion because I watch it happen all the time. Somebody comes up and makes a, well, the racism that's so hot right now, makes a certain statement about racism, and they get immediately, you are not a person because Mm. of the position you take. And that could be anywhere in the spectrum. That's just not the way it is. Differ, yes. But if you're involved with somebody... You're not going to cancel them because you love them We're told to. And if you're from a distance, just let it be. Cancel culture is completely non-Christian. Do
1: you have just like a a word of encouragement or hope for maybe someone who's listening who has gone through moral failure or who has had to step down from a pastoral role? Yeah. Uh,
0: Well, I've worked with a number of people. The, The best thing I can say to somebody who's been through that is the story's not older. The story is not over. Jesus specializes in healing and redemption. But the first step is you've got to confess. You've got to talk about it. You've got to be open. And when you're being protective and defensive, which I get, that's not the way to redemption. You've got to find safe people who will call you on your garbage. They're not coddling you, but they're also not canceling you. And you've got to deal with it. Jesus specializes in redemption. I use a public story. Bill Russell, he was lead pastor of my church, Grace Community Church, and he went through a difficult spot, and he ended up having to step out of the pastoral role. He made a public confession. I was standing beside him when he did it. He had hurt some people in a reactive kind of way, and he confessed that to the whole church. I was standing on one side, the chairman of the elder was standing on the other side, and I was the one who rebuked him for his sin in front of the whole church. I mean, oh my gosh, what a tense. To Bill's credit, he he's at Union Gospel Rescue Mission. He went there. He did tremendous better redemption work. I was a part of that team that helped him. He was man of the year in Portland two mm. years ago. Wow. And he's one of the most honored people in the whole city of Portland for the work he does at Union Gospel Rescue Mission. And it's because he dealt with this stuff deeply, powerfully, in the grace of God, when he got himself in trouble. And I love the story of Bill Russell. He's a close friend. Uh, he and Tammy are just amazing people. Love them with a vengeance. And man of the year in Portland. I mean, that's a pretty good story of redemption. <laughs> yeah, the story's not over. Jesus specialized in redemption, but you got to deal with your garbage mm-hmm. in the process. And that's where gracious people will help you deal with your garbage and believe in healing.
2: I think I'm just floored, uh, mostly uh, <laughs> speechless in, in the literal sense. Yeah, I think the two common things I'm, I've heard over this whole conversation is just honesty, of just being honest with about where you're at and what you're going through as someone in leadership and also this sense of community and having a true brotherly love for one another and having those people in your life and intentionally making sure you have those people in your life. Love redemption
0: stories. Love redemption stories. It's called a Jesus thing. Mm. He's pretty good at it. He's pretty good at it. That's right. Yeah. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you want to learn more about Can I Say That? our guests on the show, or submit questions and participate in polls, please join us on Instagram at Can I Say That Show. We love interacting with our audience and hearing how this show has affected, changed, and challenged you in your own walk. So please join us.